Well, you've heard a couple of little things about In the Harvest ministry this morning. It's where we go out and either knock on doors or engage people downtown, seek to pray with them if they're interested and share the gospel. And you saw my video from eight days ago when we were downtown. And just one story from that experience just eight days ago is um, that we were out, me and my partner, engaging with people, and I saw a family across the street. And the Spirit sort of prompted in me that maybe I should go and talk to them. But uh, I don't usually talk to groups. I just like individuals, so I just kept walking. And uh, then we came back uh, down the other side, and there was the family again. And it was almost like the Spirit of God just sort of picked me up and turned me around, and around I went to talk to them. They were sort of down a little bit on some stairs in a, in a little corner area, so I had them trapped. It was wonderful. And uh, so uh, mom and dad and three kids... And uh, as, um, as I was there uh, talking to them, you know, sort of started with the opening speech, uh, the, the kids, you know, are all shocked, their eyes are big, and just started, you know, hey, can we pray for you, and gave the little opening script that some of you are familiar with. And uh, then the dad right away began to speak for the family, and he said uh, just... Uh, he sort of described... Sorry, let me just pause here. I'm, ben, I'm hearing quite a lot of feedback behind me. That would help. Thank you. Um, and so um, I'm talking to this dad, and he right away sort of tells me what he's doing in his life. And he drops some clues that let me know that he was a believer in Jesus. And so he told me that. And then after that, he went on to tell me that he was in the midst of a trial. And just going through, and he explained that a little bit, and I could just see on his face the weight of that trial, and I could see on his wife's face the weight of that trial. And they said, we went to Niagara Falls last night to, to get away and just to encourage ourselves, and now we've come back to St. Catharines. We just ordered some food, and we're just waiting on the food we're going to eat and then, then go home. And then I was able to say to them, well, can I just pray for you? Can I pray that just God would encourage you and give you hope and peace in this moment? And it was such a wonderful moment. Normally I pray a little brief prayer, but I got to pray a longer prayer of just that they would see the, the hope and the encouragement and the peace and the assurance that God brings in those moments. And as I prayed it, I could just see how meaningful it was to them, like there was a little bit of a burden lifted off. And as I was praying it, in my heart, I was just worshiping God. I was like, God, this is amazing. You love this family so much. You took them to Niagara Falls. Somehow they decided to go to St. Catharines downtown, you know, to get a bite of, of food for lunch. Lunch, and then here I am to pray for them. God, you're amazing. Actually, in my heart, I was like, I feel a little bit like an angel, just sort of showing up unaware, you know, to encourage these people to say to them, there's assurance, there's hope, there's help, there's encouragement. And that's what God does for us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of difficult times. He has a way of sending help sending encouragement to us. And I hope that's what God will do this morning, especially for those of you that may be in a trial, may be in a difficult time. I hope the words of Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, will give you real hope and real encouragement today. That's where we're headed. That's my heart. Just as I got to pray for that family and encourage them, pray this morning as we have entered, may you find that same sort of help and encouragement from God's Word. 
Let me just introduce myself. My name is Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor. And if I don't get to meet any of you at the door today, just a warm welcome to you, but would love to connect with you at the door. And then also to our Harbor online community. So grateful you're with us this morning. And just uh, hopefully we can connect with you during this week as well. Uh, let me just finish that in the Harvest Story from eight days ago. So uh, then after we talked some more, I shared the gospel with him. Actually, it was one of my worst gospel shares because my pen ran out during the three circles. So I was making indents on the piece of paper to try to communicate it clearly. I did not think it went well. Then, um, but then he, after that, then shared of his faith in Christ and told me more specifically what the trial was they were going through. And then I had an opportunity to say this. I said, you know, I've prayed that God would meet you in your trial, but I think I can also help answer the prayer I just prayed. And so we exchanged phone numbers, and then yesterday morning for breakfast, we got together and spent two hours together, got to hear his story and hear what God was doing in his life. And he actually sent me a text afterwards after we met. He said, you're like God has brought an angel into my life. I was like, oh, wow, I feel so honored because I'm nothing like an angel. But yet just to be in that moment, the other thing he said that was so interesting and just a great learning for me how God used that moment, was he saw in me, in my poor gospel share with my pen running out, he saw in me a passion for the gospel. And he said, all week, that passion that you had for the gospel has welled up in my heart again. So I was just reminded of how our passion for the gospel spreads out to other people. So today we're in the book of First Peter. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, I sure hope you'll open them up. You'll turn them on. It's First Peter. It's all the way near the end. If you get to Revelation, come back, come forward a little bit. There's some Johns, and then you get to First and Second Peter. We're in chapter 1. The group of people Peter is writing to, they're believers. They're trying to live out their faith, but they're treated like they're aliens, like they're exiles. They're being persecuted. They're being made fun of. They're being ridiculed. They're losing out on opportunities, and Peter is writing them to try to encourage them in the midst of their faith. It's like a pause. It's like a moment. Peter's saying, here, I've sent you this letter in the midst of all your trials, and I just want you to know these things. I just want you to know these things. Now, for all the rest of us, if you're not going through a trial today, here's the thing you get this morning. You get great perspective on what really matters in life. And so if things are really good for you, you can just step back today and say, okay, help me just implant these truths into my heart so that when a trial comes, then I'm ready and I'm prepared and I've gone deeper into these truths. So, in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter starts this way, this paragraph, in all of this you can greatly rejoice. See that in all of this, what he's just said, and all that God has done for him in salvation, which Mark, talk, Mark talked about last week, but now he's going to look forward and say, in all of these trials that you're going through, you can greatly rejoice in them as well. He's saying there's a purpose in trials. God providentially has a plan in all that is happening and wants to bring about some good in the people's lives he is writing to. And so as we look through these next verses, here's how it's going to break down, or here's how I've broken it down. The first part in the next verse is simply this, my, our perspective towards trials. 
What, what, what actually should be our perspective? And Peter gives us three things there. And then the second part, he gives us three things where he says, here can be your assurance in the midst of trials. Here's the things you need to hang on to in the midst of trials. So perspective towards and then assurance in trouble. And so the second half of verse uh, six helps us with that. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So there's the trials word again, and in that sentence, Peter has told us three things about trials. First, he says this, you've had to suffer grief. And here's the thing I'll mention that Peter talks about. He says, your trials are distressing. They're painful. They're difficult. They're not easy. And what I appreciate about Peter is he's not downplaying their troubles. You know, he could have written, well, guys, I'm in jail in Rome, and I'm going to be crucified upside down, so my problems are a whole lot worse than yours. He's not saying that. He's just saying that their trouble is a grief, and they are suffering in it. I just like how he's able to identify with them that whatever they're going through is painful and difficult. And at times, this is a great learning for us. We might want to diminish someone else's trial or we might want to diminish our own. But Peter is just saying, I understand that you're in the midst of this grief, this trial. And then he describes them in a second way. He says, all kinds. They're varied. They're diverse. They come in different forms and different times and different ways and different circumstances. There's a lot of variety to these trials. So he's looking in on this group of people and he's saying, you're suffering in all sorts of different ways. And so I'm just not going to talk about one way or one specific thing, but there's a whole breadth here to that. And I think that's helpful again for us today. There's all sorts of different trials. And even if we were to go around this room and talk what trials we would be in, we would find great diversity in that. And Peter is saying, whatever trial you're in, I've got some assurances for you. And then here's the last thing he says. You'll see it there. For a little while. Peter is saying their trials are temporary. They're brief. They're going to be transient. They're, that's, they last for a little while. Now, two points of clarification on that. One is, as we think about the intensity of trials, we would say probably that the intensity 10 of a trial does not normally last for decades, right? If, 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 it's, if we're really in the midst of a trial and it's really difficult, there is probably an ebb and flow to that, that sometimes it may be worse than others. And in some ways, I think this is what Peter is saying here. There's an ebb and flow, and if you're at the number 10 marker, it's not always going to be there. It's going to be temporary. But in another sense, I think he's always saying this, and we could think of people in our world today or certainly in history. Maybe you were born, someone was born into a family that trusted in Jesus. They came to trust in Jesus. And through their entire life, they saw their family, both the one they were born into and then the family that they grew up in, always be persecuted for their faith, always be ridiculed, always have a disadvantage, always in fear of their lives. We know that there has been times and places, even today, that someone could live their entire life being persecuted for having faith in Jesus Christ. And so you look in and you say, well, Peter, that's not a little while. That's a lifetime. 
And to that, Peter would respond, in view of eternity, it's a little while. 10,000 years from now, your lifetime of suffering will not feel that long. In fact, 10 billion years from now, your lifetime, if that's what it was, your entire lifetime of suffering will only seem like a little while. And so Peter is putting our, perspe- our trouble, our trials, in perspective. He's not diminishing them. He's saying there's all sorts of different kinds, but ultimately they only last for a little while. So that's the perspective. Now down to verse 7, he begins to give us three assurances, three assurances that we need to hold on to in the midst of any trial. Look at verse 7. It's a purpose. He starts with a purpose statement. These have come so that... So you see what Peter is saying. He just talked about trials in verse 6, and now he's saying these have come so that he's giving us the reason for the trials. And what he writes next is to show the proven genuineness of your faith. This is his first assurance, the proven genuineness of your faith. What does that mean? Well, he means the trials are going to show something. They're going to demonstrate something. They're going to reveal something, prove something. And and what do trials show? Well, the genuineness of someone's faith, the realness of it, the purity of someone's faith, the substance of their faith, the authenticity of their faith. That's what Peter is saying here in this phrase. To help us understand it, we'll just reverse the scenario. Let's just think of a scenario where it was really advantageous to be a follower of Jesus. I mean that if you were a follower of Jesus, you had better economic opportunities, your kids had better athletic opportunities, better educational opportunities, you had a better social network. Everything, it would be to your advantage to be a Christian. All the connections and all the opportunities, all the open doors that you would face. There are places like that in the world today where it's advantageous to put forward your Christian faith because you know like it's going to work for you. In fact, if you live in one of those places, or imagine someone living in one of those places, they may wake up on a sunny morning and say to the family, hey, let's go to church this morning. And someone might say, why do we want to go to church? Because it's going to be a benefit to us, right? There's lots of advantages here. We're going to meet people. We're going to network. We're, you're good kids, you're going to get into a good school. You're going to make the football team or whatever else it could be. Come to church with us. Now, again, as that family came to church, you may not know why are they actually coming to church. Are they coming to church because they're seeking Jesus? Or are they coming to church because they just want the advantages of Christianity? And likewise, that family would not know everyone else looking around in the church why they have actually come. But let me tell you what Peter is teaching us here. How would we know? Well, just reverse the scenario and bring trials and trouble and tribulation into that community or that environment, and suddenly it's not advantageous. It's, dis, it's, it's a disadvantage. And then see how many people are in church. See the ones that are left there. That, in some ways, would be the trial, would be proving the genuineness of people's faith. And Peter is writing to this audience, and he's saying, I see that you're still following Jesus. You're demonstrating that you believe in him, that he's worth more than anything else. And then Peter goes on, and he gives us a great illustration to help us understand this. I so appreciate Peter does this because he writes the illustration right into the text. It makes my job easier. He says, to prove the genuineness of your faith, 
And then here's the illustration of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. So he's making a comparison here between gold and our faith. And, and it's a good comparison. Gold is valuable. And Peter is saying our faith is valuable. And also he's saying gold is mostly imperishable. In fact, the, the last line says gold can even perish. But as I've understood it, gold is one of the hardest metals to perish. But Peter is saying, as he compares it to faith, your faith is imperishable. No trial, no fire can destroy it. And so he's giving us a picture here of our faith like gold. And when you put gold into the fire, gold has impurities in it. It has all these impurities. But the fire, the refining fire, causes the impurities to rise to the surface, and then they're scraped away. What is left then is more pure and genuine, authentic gold. And the gold was more valuable than before. And that's the illustration Peter is helping us understand our faith. Our faith is immensely valuable, but it has impurities in it. Who would say here this morning, my faith is 100% perfect. Every moment of the day, I completely and totally trust in Jesus. We all know that our faith lacks in moments. We grumble, we complain, we get pessimistic, we get discouraged, we get worried and upset about many things. And then we look around our world and we start to put our hope and our trust in other things. We put it in money for a moment or popularity or hobbies or our image or our relationships. We just so easy transfer our hope and our trust from one thing to another. But yet Peter is saying that's our reality. None of us have 100% perfect faith. And so what does God do? Well, he doesn't, he wants, God wants us to experience the fullness of all that he offers his life, his greatness, his goodness, his grace. And so what happens? God allows trials to refine our faith. God allows trials so that the impurities come to the surface and can be scraped away so that our faith can be more pure and more genuine. What God longs for us is that we would be utterly dependent on him that our joy would come from Him and Him alone, not from things or from people, but that's the value of faith. That's what makes it so valuable, that we would just totally and completely trust in Him. And so He's using trials to refine that. So here's the first assurance we can have in the midst of trials. The first assurance is this, is that God is using those as a developing faith in Christ. A developing faith in Christ. He's using the trials to develop, to refine our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. It's wonderful here. Peter does not confuse. He doesn't say, well, the testing of your faith means that your faith has failed, that your faith is inadequate. He's just saying your faith is so precious that God is using it to make it more valuable and to take it deeper. Here's how Charles Spurgeon, as he talked about this passage, here's what he wrote, and you'll see the quote on the side screens. We must expect trial because trial is the element of faith. Faith without trial is like a diamond uncut, the brilliance of which has never been seen. A fish without water or a bird without air is faith without trial. We may surely expect that our faith will be tested. 
And so we're reminded today, if you're in the midst of trial, what is God doing? He's trying to refine our faith because it is so precious and so valuable. And what God wants more than anything else and what is more valuable than anything is we would just more completely trust in him. So that's the first assurance we have in the midst of trial. Second assurance, if you would go down to verse 8, he gives a second thing here. And let me just read the verse for you, and then we'll highlight a couple of portions. Here's what Peter writes. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. A lot of words there in that verse. But there's two negatives, Peter says, two nots. He's saying to the audience he's writing to, first, you have not seen him, meaning Jesus, meaning you have never seen Jesus personally in the flesh. And then secondly, you, ha- you do not see him now. So the first one was the past. You haven't seen Jesus in the past. And now present, you are not physically seeing Jesus in the present. Now, it's Peter, as he's writing this, here's what he's thinking. I have seen Jesus. I spent three years with him. I've spent time with Jesus. I've hung out with him. You know, again, you imagine Peter coming to visit these churches. Peter would only have one sermon he'd be allowed to give. Just tell us about Jesus. Just, you know, get up and talk all day. We will stay all night. We'll stay for weeks. Just tell us everything you can remember about Jesus because we just long to know more about him and understand him more. Even think of us today. You know, if we could go back in time and spend five minutes with Jesus, wouldn't we take that up? Wouldn't we just long, just any moment in Jesus' life, just have me standing on a hill and have Jesus walk by. I'll take it. Just five minutes just to see Jesus and understand him and just know him more. Oh, how we would love that. And Peter is saying, this is what he's reminding his audience of, you have not seen Jesus You have not, and you don't see him now. But Peter could say it this way. Hey, too bad for you guys. You've really missed out. You know, wow, I wish you had been like me. You see, I was with Jesus, so I'm in a trial, and it's really much easier for me because, you see, I've been with Jesus, and he's helped me. And if you had been with Jesus, you'd be okay too. But now you're sort of second-class Christians because you've never really seen or been with Jesus. But Peter doesn't say that at all. He says the exact opposite. Look what he says. You have not seen him, but you still love him. And even though you have not seen him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy. Peter's marking some truths about these believers. He's saying, even though you've never met Jesus, you love him, you trust in him, and you are filled with his joy. Peter's thinking is this that their experience, their relationship with Jesus is not diminished at all because they have never been with him personally. He's saying you can know him and love him and experience his joy in the same way I have, even though I was with Jesus. And this is sort of the thesis of Peter's letter here, how he started out. Remember, he said, you're the elect exiles. The elect part is important here. God chose you. He gave you a new birth and a living hope, and now he's filled you with his spirit so that you can love him and know him and be filled with this joy. It's like Peter's painting this picture. You know, you're going through life, and we've had some fog this week, and it's like life is a little bit foggy. 
You know, you can't really see that clearly. But then along comes a trial. And what trials do is they dispel the fog and suddenly we can see Christ clearly. We can know him and love him. And then look what it says is possible. We can be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter is saying there is a joy that comes from knowing Christ that you can't even explain with words. It's just deep in our hearts. It's this uninterrupted, eternal fountain of joy. And Peter says you can know that kind of relationship with Jesus. So here's the second assurance that we have in the midst of trials. The first is this, is that they are uh, developing our faith, but the second thing is they are deepening our relationship with Christ. This is what Peter's saying here. He's saying these trials are designed to take you deeper with Christ. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. If you're wondering today what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's right here in this verse. It simply means, Jesus, I love you and I trust in you. You are better than anything else. And it's those moments in our heart where we're reading the Bible or reading something else and just something just wells up inside of us. Jesus, I just love you. I just trust in you. Or it's when we're worshiping together and suddenly our heart just beats a little bit faster because we're like, oh, Jesus, I know you. I love you. He just, at these moments in life, puts a thrill in our heart. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian to know Jesus, to love him, and to experience his joy. And just for a moment, if you're maybe new today, new watching online, you maybe think Christianity is defined in terms of behavior. You know, Christians behave in a certain way, and we will come to that part in this book here. You know, Christians are ones who have to meet God's standards, but here's what we know. Here's what we know. None of us can live up to the standard of God. None of us can fully trust in him. And anytime we don't trust in him and we look to something else, in fact, it's a diminishment of the greatness and the glory of God. And so we would realize we all have turned our back on God. We all have disobeyed him. But then in the reality, in that reality, as we sang this morning, Jesus paid for our sin. He paid for our wrongs. And so why does a Christian just love Jesus because we humble ourselves and we realize we've fallen far short of his standard, but yet on the cross, Jesus loved us and died for us. He took our punishment. And so we just receive all that he wants to give us in that moment. And then through every trial, there he is, there with us, filling us with the potential for his inexpressible joy. Chi, thanks for telling us your story today, how all of these other things in life can look attractive for a moment, but then you chose Jesus and trusted in him. Thank you for sharing that with us. And my encouragement would be to anyone else here this morning, online, if you've never taken that step, if you've never trusted in Christ, oh, wouldn't today you just say, there's nothing else in this world that will ever satisfy me? I'm just going to put my faith and trust in Christ. Wouldn't you just, even now in your heart, just turn to him, make him the Lord of your life. Jesus is Lord. Declare that in your own heart. I've been reading a book 
Uh, it's a book called, written by a guy named John Patton. He was a missionary many years ago, at least 100 years ago, and he went to the South Pacific, uh, to some of the islands there. I think Vanuatu is what we call them today and the other islands in that area. And when he went there, uh, the people there were very violent tribes. They were actually known as cannibals. And so any visitors, some missionaries had gone before, and they had actually been eaten, killed and eaten by the tribes. And so, but it was his heart to go and reach them. So I'm reading his autobiography, and I'm about 40% of the way through. And let me give you the summary of every chapter. This is what surprised me about every chapter. Here's a summary of every chapter. The, the, um, the people, the islanders, they tried to kill me, yet God provided a way out. In the first chapter I read that, I thought, wow, God, you're so faithful. I underlined, highlighted the story. I thought this would be a good story. Then the next chapter, you know what happened? The islanders tried to kill him, and God provided a way out. I'm 40% of the way book, through the book. The entire time he's on the island, every chapter that's happening, it's not even exciting anymore. He's got to add different elements to the story. It's so fascinating. I'm like, how did this man, year after year, live under the stress of always feeling like his life was going to be in danger, his life taken from him. So I've got one story here. Let me read the first part, and then I'll show you the second part. But here's what he wrote. But my eldums seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life. Right? And th this is the story of the book so far. Then one day a large number were assembled at my house, and a man furiously rushed on me with his axe. But a chief snatched a spade, which, which I had been working with, and dare, uh, defended me from instant death. End of sentence. That's it. That's the paragraph. And he's got like, there's so many of these stories where his life is just spared miraculously. But then after he tells that brief story in one paragraph, which for me would be, you know, the whole book almost, but then he writes these words. You'll see the quote on the side screen. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made, and yet with trembling hand, clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary, and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. Isn't that wonderful? He's saying, I never knew for one hour where the attack might come from, but look at his, his deepening relationship with Christ. He said, I grabbed onto Christ's hand. And I love how he explains the hand of Christ. The one who's got a nail in it from Calvary, the grace. And then the one in the other hand who holds the scepter of king of the universe. I hold on to Jesus who died for me and Jesus who reigns, and that brought a calmness and peace and resignation in our souls. What does God want to do in the midst of our trials? One is he wants to deepen our faith. He wants to refine them, make them more pure. But then he also wants to deepen our relationship with Christ so that we can know that we can hang on to him, that he is better than anything else. Now, I know these are really big ideas. And you may be listening to this thinking, oh, this is so hard. 
I'm not sure I have enough faith. I'm not sure I can get all the way through. I'm not sure I can do this. Well, two things in that regard. Peter actually anticipates us saying that, and the next paragraph, which I do next week, he sort of answers that objection. If you're feeling like this is so hard, I'm not sure I can make it, he gives us some tips, he gives us some insights into how we walk this journey. But then he also says something this week, a third idea as we're feeling this is so hard. I'm not sure my faith can handle it. I'm not sure my faith can survive. Here's what he writes in the back of, I, I skipped over it, but I'll go back to it now at the end of verse 6. He says, your faith may be proved genuine. Why? So that may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you see that last part there? When Jesus is revealed, one day you're going to see Jesus. One day, all who have put their faith in Christ and trusted in him, you will see Jesus. The day is coming when he will be revealed. The goal of our faith, our goal of our trust in him will be realized and we, our eyes, will behold the Savior. And in that moment, here's what it says. God will reward every instance of faith that stood the test. There's going to be praise for those who endured hardship. There's going to be honor and glory awarded. And, and this, that sort of phrase, it's hard to understand, but I think it means both. We receive glory, but then we also share it and pass it on to Christ's glory. And then at the end of verse 9, it says, For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Both these verses sort of look forward, but they also look now. And he's saying in the midst of this trial, you're going to get the end result of your salvation. You're saved now, but you're going to be saved fully one day. And so Peter, what he's doing is he's helping people look forward to the future and what lies ahead. And he's saying the object of your faith, one day you're going to see Jesus. You're going to receive glory, and you will glory in him. Here's the best way I could summarize it. I was going to say a delightful future worshiping Christ because I wanted a D word, and it certainly will be delightful, but I went with a determined future uh, worshiping Christ, meaning a guaranteed future. Peter's saying there's a guaranteed future for all who have faith in Christ. You will end up worshiping him. I don't know if you've ever you know, been to the airport when you're doing, you know, two flights and you've got to check bags and then, uh, you know, you're, you're going to fly through a city, the bags are going to get transferred onto the new plane and then you're going to, you know, hopefully get them at the end. And, and sometimes when I've done that, checked in, no, I've got two legs and then the, you know, the check-in agent, she looks at your ticket and says, oh, you have a short layover. And I'm like, yeah, I'm very much aware of that. I've been praying that these bags will make the layover. And then sometimes she'll say this. She will say, oh, I've got a little tag here I'll put on your bag that says, you know, short layover time. I'll just tag it and that will, that will help make sure your bags get through. And here's what I'm thinking and you're thinking the same thing. I may never see this bag again, right? That, that way I, I have not put anything valuable in it. I'm hoping it's going to make it. Sue and I had an experience one year. We uh, checked the bags in in July and flew, and then uh, come December, ring at our doorbell. We've delivered your bag. Six months later, British Airways did actually find our bag and bring it back to us. But when you're doing that at the airport, you have no guarantee that that delivery is actually going to happen. But what Peter is teaching us here is there's a guaranteed delivery. It's a determined future. 
And that's been the logic Peter has been using all along as he's built this out. He's saying, first, you were elect. God chose you. Then he gave you this new birth in your life. He gave you this living hope. And this is what Mark talked about last week. And then he says he's got an inheritance for you. And now he says here, one day you're going to behold and see Jesus. And Mark said this last week, but it's worth saying it again. As we're walking that journey, you're like, I'm not sure my faith can hold on. And what Peter says, back up one verse, he says, I'm guarding your faith. I'm shielding your faith. I am going to get you through. What Peter's confidence in here is in God that he is going to get us through and persevere us all the way to the end. And that's how Peter's encouraging them. He's not in any way lessening their responsibility to work on their faith and to deepen it and to purify it and to run into Christ. But he's saying, you can be assured no matter how weak your faith feels that Christ is faithful, he will see you through to the end. And it's that confidence that helps us relax and rest and just trust in Christ. We will arrive one day and see Jesus face to face, and we might be tempted to think, I made it. My faith lasted. And then we'll look back over our lives, and we'll see all along the way, there was Jesus guarding and protecting and watching over our faith and bringing us to this moment where we can stand before Christ. Think of the moment I had with that family eight days ago. Their faith is fainting. They're discouraged. They're going through a trial. God, do you really care about us? Do you really have a purpose for my life? What are you doing? And then God sends me, of all people, right in that moment, right, to pray for them and to encourage them. I'm so honored to be a part of that and so honored to be able to say to them. That was God guarding and protecting and assuring them giving them hope in the midst of their trial. May Christ give us the same perspective today. What's God doing in the midst of our trials? He's deepening our faith. He's developing our faith. He's deepening our relationship. But he's also speaking to us about our guaranteed future. He will see us home. Let me pray for us this morning. God, you see, Lord, those that are here, Lord, who you brought here this morning because they're in the midst of such a difficult time such a difficult time. And God, we pray, Lord, that the perspective that Peter spoke on trials, Lord, would speak to our hearts today. God, give us the perspective we need. Give us the assurance that we need in the midst of all that we are going through. And God, we thank Christ for all he's done for us. In your name, amen. Well, it's Thanksgiving weekend. Wishing you all a very happy Thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for. And as we go today, we always end our service with four words. It reminds us that we've gathered, but now we have a mission to fulfill. So harbor, we are sent.